With more than half a million people homeless in the United States, many experts argue that it would benefit both the chronically homeless and the healthcare system to provide them with permanent housing and supportive services, an approach known as housing first. And some argue that such programs can actually save more money than they cost. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Stefan Curtis, an Associate Professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine and a physician at the Birmingham VA Medical Center. Dr. Curtis has co-authored a perspective article about the problems with applying a cost savings outcome metric to this housing first approach. Dr. Curtis, could you begin by telling us a bit about the history of the housing first method and the theories behind it? Sure. Starting in the 1990s, individuals and experts who worked with severely mentally ill individuals who are homeless began to recognize that it was very difficult to help those people attain long-term housing if they were required to show sort of great performance on a series of treatment programs before that housing support was provided. And they felt that actually recovery was best advanced by assuring that a permanent housing need was met first, almost as a human right and as a fundamental element in Maslow's hierarchy. So the approach taken was, look, let's offer people permanent housing, which can take a number of different forms, and then wrap the services around the individual in accordance with their wishes and honoring their preferences in terms of how they would like to pursue medical or psychological and social recovery. Where have Housing First programs been implemented? Are these initiatives mostly at the local level, or have there been state or even federal actions? There have been initiatives at all of those levels. So In places like New York, there is a strong support from the Medicaid program to fund agencies that would provide the necessary services while they received housing assistance using federal or state supports. And on the West Coast, there have been city-level endeavors in which the city would either purchase or help fund large buildings, which would provide long-term housing for people who've been some of the most difficult customers on the street. But it's also the case that the federal government as a whole has endorsed Housing First as a preferred method for ending chronic homelessness, and significant initiatives have occurred in the Department of Veterans Affairs, which have played a big role in helping veterans escape homelessness. You write in your article that some Housing First programs use a scattered site model and others use a project-based model. So what's the difference and what do they look like on the ground? On the ground, a scattered site approach involves providing an individual with a voucher or an assistance for paying the rent in private market apartments in your neighborhood, typically modest apartments or low-cost ones. The individual lives in an apartment in a neighborhood of their choosing, and that is seen as being the best way to honor the community integration objective of Housing First. Then a team has to follow and take care of that individual who might have mental breakdowns or challenges medically. And that team very often includes at least one member who visits the individual in their home weekly or monthly, and others who are available to check in and support them, including potentially a psychiatrist, a nurse, a social worker, or a peer support worker. The project-based approach often arises in housing markets where it's very difficult to find private landlords who want to rent apartments at a low rate. And so a city or a nonprofit sets up a building and says, look, we are willing to work with federal housing vouchers or we're willing to work with a municipal payer. And we'll put a whole bunch of people who have pretty high needs in the same apartment building, but we'll also install community-based services on the first floor, typically. 
And this is a model that's had a greater impact in San Francisco and in Los Angeles compared to the East Coast and the Midwest. But there are examples across the country. And for some people, being around other individuals who are leaving homelessness behind actually represents a reassuring social environment. It's also a convenience for the service providers because they don't have to drive across far-flung units to find their customers. So how strong is the evidence that Housing First is more effective than programs that, as you said, require people to have psychiatric or substance abuse treatment before they receive the housing? The evidence is quite strong. There have been several randomized controlled trials as well as observational studies. And across multiple such studies, both in the U.S. and most importantly, In Canada, there have been good evidence that usual care approaches tend to result in somewhere between um, ballparking 30 to 50 percent of individuals attaining housed status after a year of follow-up, whereas the housing first approaches tend to result in more like 60 to 85 percent of people attaining housed status after a year of follow-up. And I think that that evidence is quite compelling. Looking back at where we started, the cost angle. You argue in your article that endorsing Housing First because it can save money is problematic and might backfire. So why is that, and where did the idea of cost savings come from to begin with? I think there really are two ways in which that argument came about. The first is it is undeniable that when individuals are without a place to stay, some percentage of them consume additional resources as a result of landing in hospitals and jails or circulating in a revolving door fashion through emergency departments. And that may not be all of the people who are homeless, but it's a very visible subset. And even in the New England Journal back in 1998, there was an article published showing extended hospital stays in New York City for people who are homeless, probably because the doctors did not know where to discharge the patients. So I think people working in the service sectors seeing these patients said, gee, housing might actually stabilize the situation. Additionally, if you think about the challenges we have in this country in making the case for helping people who are needy, sometimes we draw this line between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And some of those people who wind up chronically homeless look undeserving to the culture at large. And I think that it seemed like a very attractive argument to say, look, if you house these individuals, particularly those who've costed so much, it's not just the right thing to do, it's going to protect your own wallet. And there was a very, very famous story published by Malcolm Gladwell called Million Dollar Murray about a man who was repeatedly taken to the hospital, well known to the police in Las Vegas, I believe. And by the time the article was written, he had consumed several million dollars of expenditure, which really would have been enough to purchase a house. The challenge, of course, is that among people who experience homelessness, not all, and probably only very few, are really such intensive consumers of services. So if we leave the metric of net savings aside, what metrics should actually be used to judge these programs and to judge whether they're effective over time? Well, I think scientifically, the easiest metric is, does the approach actually help people leave homelessness behind? And that is the one that we can measure repeatedly in randomized controlled trials and therefore is easy to present. I think that we have to talk about other measures which are either harder to quantify or take longer to study. But those would include the community impact of having a clear long-term response to homelessness. It is not easy for new businesses to develop in a neighborhood where lots of individuals are congregated on the streets, or it's not easy for people to contemplate buying homes in neighborhoods like that. So there's a community impact, which arguably could be quantified, but is somewhat hard to do. There's also the health and the well-being of the individual 
who is going to be helped. There is, as the economists would put it, a utility to being housed, to being able to make choices. And there are certainly individual stories of people who go on to stage a very successful clinical recovery in terms of their mental, medical, and social issues after housing is provided. Although I should caution that the randomized controlled trial data on that is mixed and typically short-term. And the final metric, I guess it's not really a metric, but the final priority that has to be weighed here is the moral priority, which is who are we as a community if we countenance large numbers of highly vulnerable individuals living on the streets and vulnerable to death on those streets. There's a long moral tradition, both in our religious faiths and in our civic dialogue, that almost everybody subscribes to it to some degree, which is that we should respond to those who are most needy among us. So finally, given all of that, what do you see as the future of Housing First? Do you think that new programs are going to continue to be implemented, or do you see barriers arising? What's going to happen? I think that the data is so strong that communities will continue to recognize Housing First as a best practice. The biggest challenges are in those communities where there is not well-developed funding structures for the supportive services that individuals need once they're housed. That happens more often in southern states or those states that have not expanded Medicaid, where some of the health services can be handled, or in places where there's not state assistance to match federal assistance for the social services. So that's a standing barrier. We're having this conversation shortly after an election where all bets are off in terms of what will happen next in terms of federal policy. I do think it's very unlikely that communities will turn their back on an approach that has proven to be so very powerfully effective. But the argument for resources to advance housing first needs to continue. And in part, we think that argument really has to encompass some of the monetary savings, which are at least off, or there's a partial offset achieved at hospitals and jails and such, but also the moral and clinical benefits that we think can accrue to individuals and to communities when Housing First is adopted. Thank you, Dr. Curtis.